coming to support each other in your spiritual foundation, the most important foundation for human life. We've just finished a three-month Ango period. Ango means peaceful dwelling. Um, we can look peaceful as we sit, but a lot can be going on inside, as you all know. A lot of sorting through the tangle of thoughts in the mind and literally sorting through, letting go of those that are either outright lies, like everyone is looking at you, or uh, thoughts that create suffering. You're so stupid. Fundamentally, Buddhism is an educational system about how the mind creates suffering and how to um, work with that so it doesn't create suffering anymore. In a, way it's very, in a way, it's very simple, and in a way, it's very hard work. So the Buddha said, sort through your, your thoughts, notice the ones that are untrue or creating suffering, and let those go. And or, so, and or substitute thoughts that are beneficial, that are wholesome and beneficial for you and for others. Again, that sounds very simple, but it's actually hard work. So we had three months of working to change unwholesome habits, noticing, discovering those unwholesome habits of thought and heart, and changing them. Our practice is a lot of trying and failing and trying again. One Sangha member wrote uh, a very joyous email a few days ago about getting an art education grant. After years, literally years, of submitting applications and being turned down. And I congratulated her on the grant that she got, but I congratulated her more on her determination and her perseverance. And she wrote back to say, because she's in the educational field, that perseverance is one of the most important traits now in the field of education in the 21st century, which is very nice that they're recognizing perseverance as something to cultivate in ourselves and encourage students to cultivate. You know, Jizo is the bodhisattva of this monastery that this monastery is dedicated to. And Jizo has uh, a number of traits, qualities. And one of the qualities is great determination and never giving up. Resting when it's appropriate, but never turning back. So that's one of my own, my own vows, to become enlightened, however long that takes, and to never turn back from that vow. The Japanese say eight times down and nine times up. In the case of this grant, I think it might have been 45 or 50 times down, and then finally, thumbs up. I was reading my alumni magazine from UC San Diego, and of course, they like to feature stories of alumni who have been successful. I, think, I don't think I've ever seen a story of alumni who are unsuccessful. <laughs> <Have> you? 
the stories are to inspire us, right? <laughs> and inspire us to send our kids to those colleges, I guess, or donate to the colleges. Anyway, there was a very interesting story about a young man who um, was an avid surfer, and he went to UC San Diego because you can just, in five minutes, you can be down on the beach and surfing. So that was his motive, to go to UC San Diego. And then he wanted to become financially independent by age 30. And he developed a, um, a website that involved uh, helping people enter contests and playing different games. And he said, the article said it was way ahead of its time. Now it would be very successful, but at the time it was a bust. And he, um, the website folded, and down the drain went $4 million of investment money. But he was undeterred, and he went off surfing in Australia so he could think, because surfing is a kind of meditation, right? So he could clear his mind and think about what to do next. And uh, he got the idea for a camera, which is now called GoPro. You might have heard of it. And uh, he said he's not an engineer. He actually, against his parents' advice, had majored in art, art and, and creative um, endeavors in college. And he said he's the, he's the idea creator, but he's not the engineer. So he, got, he uses engineers to um, manifest his vision. And uh, there were many, many prototypes. You know, it wasn't like, oh, here's a GoPro, but it, it developed over several years. And he hired all of his friends. That's one of his rules, is hire your friends, and then you enjoy working together. And they worked in a garage. Um, and they eventually developed the GoPro camera. And so now he um, has 500 employees. And his business is worth uh, over $5 billion. So these are inspiring to us, not because we think we're going to develop a GoPro camera and become a billionaire by age 30 or 35, but because of the underlying quality that we know we can embody, which is perseverance. That no matter what we undertake, we can persevere with that. We can uh, be determined to see it through. Perseverance and loyalty, to me, are the two much underappreciated virtues in modern society. So in our uh, Ango period, we persevere because we kind of lock ourselves into a container with um, an intention, a clear vow to, to go through Ango. And it's a good thing we're sort of locked in, locked in by peer pressure, I often say that. Peer pressure is one of the most powerful tools of the Dharma, that if you come to session and you feel maybe three or four times during session, I'm going to go get in my car and leave, it helps if, first of all, you have no car, you carpooled with somebody else. And it also helps if you realize, oh, other people are having difficulty too, and they're not leaving, therefore I will stay. So everyone persevered beautifully through the three-month ongo, through ups and downs. And um, it was really interesting that we had a very touching closing circle yesterday where people shared uh, what they had learned during the Ango period. And it was a very warm and connecting time because people were so honest uh, about what they had been struggling with and what they had seen. And what was interesting to me is that a couple of people, at least, didn't have breakthroughs or, or openings until really the last day or 
after the circle. So, and that's a very common phenomenon for those of you who've done long retreats, is you just feel like, oh, I'm slogging, I'm slogging, I'm slogging. When is something going to happen? Can I make it happen? No, I can't make it happen. That gets in the way. And then when you least expect it, and often the last day or even after the retreat's over, the benefit manifests. So to keep going, it's a, a very important spiritual um, aspect of our spiritual practice. When you look at it from the wider view, there's also a very interesting article in the New York Times about the, the new, quote, religions. These are places that people find um, underlying value in life, connection with others, mutual support, uh, a feeling of ma- facing challenges and moving through challenges. And, and one of them is CrossFit. So the CrossFit centers, which are called boxes, Um, Harvard Divinity School actually interviewed people who are very loyal to CrossFit and discovered, because they had discovered through interviewing one person, that this is a kind of religion and a a community, a very tight-knit community, uh, the cross-knit community. And and they know if somebody's moving and needs help, somebody from the cross-knit community will help them. And if they're down, somebody will notice that and encourage them. So they were talking about um, other, they're, they're actually asking the question, what is a religion? What is spiritual? Um, and one uh, teacher from Harvard Divinity School said that uh, he thought a cardinal aspect of a religion or a spiritual practice is that it widens your worldview and that you not only can see with that wider view, but you, you also are moved to act in a wider way. So you move out of this I, me, mine, which the Buddha said is the source of our suffering, this concentration in I, me, mine, my little world, everything's about me, and you're able to break out of that suffocating prison and begin to have a wider view of your place in the world and in the scheme of existence, of all of existence, but also where you, the, the, the wider arena in which you can work and, and in which your practice has an effect. Your practice both on the cushion and your life your life practice, your work. So from the wider point of view, um, perseverance is important because it took us a lot, maybe many lifetimes to get into this mess of whatever life we're in now. And it's going to be probably more than lifelong work to get it all untangled. So that's why my vow is to be enlightened, to become enlightened or awakened, however long it takes. If it takes lifetimes, that's okay. But it won't, um, that knowing that it may take lifetimes won't modify my determination and my persistence to keep following that vow. So we have our personal work, but we also have our work in the, in the world. They're related, of course. This is a time when we're all very saddened by the violence in the world, which erupts every day. If you read the news, every day there are several places where violence is erupting. And we can't even keep up on our chant list uh, with all the suicide bombings and the mass shootings, even the ones that are headlined. So it's Paris, Roseburg, Oregon, Colorado, Beirut, Mali, San Bernardino, and today Yemen. 
and how especially horrible that this is occurring during a holiday season when we are focusing on peace on earth and goodwill towards all people. It's especially horrible that it's happening now. And the solutions that are offered are more weapons and retaliatory violence. So it just keeps seeming to escalate. And the young people at the monastery a a few days ago were voicing their concern. It just seems hopeless. Anything that we can do just seems like a tiny drop in the huge ocean of human suffering. what, What can we do? Entropy is real, right? We know from physics that the descent into less organization and more chaos is real. So what can we do? Well, the Buddha was a radical. Buddha was really radical. And the Buddha said that to become awakened, we must give up grief for the world. To become awakened, we must give up grief for the world. That's a very radical statement. It doesn't mean that we stop caring. It means that we are fully aware of the state of the world, actually, of the immensity of human suffering, but it doesn't plunge us into suffering. Because if we, if we suffer, then we only add more suffering to the world. So the best example I can think of is if there's a car crash and I arrive on the scene and I'm a physician, so I'm obligated to help if I can. It doesn't help if I go, oh my gosh, this is so horrible. And then I start crying and fall on the ground, weeping, beating my breast about how horrible that people drive without seatbelts. That doesn't help, right? So the Buddha meant that we have to give up that kind of grief, the grief that freezes us immobilizes us and prevents us from doing what we can do. What I said during the Jesus for Peace pilgrimage is it seems hopeless that human beings, since they, since we, it looks like since different um, groups came up, the, the Denisovians and the Homo sapiens and all the different, you know, we now know that there are so, so many different um, what we would call human or human ancestors formed in different places in the world. But they began fighting with each other right away because, oh, they were the other, and we're us, and we have to protect us. And they also interbred, too, which was good for us to get all those different genes. But we know that um, human conflict has existed since human beings began to evolve as human beings. So it seems like foolish to work for peace, right? Because violence isn't going to stop. We have to be realistic about it. It's not going to stop. But if we just give up, then chaos wins and violence wins. So we have to do whatever we can to work for peace. And we watch. We have to watch for the action of the three poisons, clinging, aversion, and ignorance. We call it greed, anger, and ignorance or clinging, aversion, and ignorance. So clinging would be even clinging to, oh, the world is in such terrible shape. The world is in such terrible shape, it's the worst it's ever been. Actually, there's less violence now than there has been in the past 
Um, but, it, oh, but people say, oh, it's, this is the worst it's ever been. And it makes me feel so terrible to hear about it. So that's not only clinging, but taking the suffering in and making it make you suffer. Aversion, we need to all be armed so we can shoot anybody who makes us afraid. Right? That's like people are advocating that. Anybody that makes us afraid, we shoot them. And that's the dilemma the, p- the police are facing because the police are afraid. They're justifiably afraid of getting killed. And so if somebody makes a move, they shoot them. Whether it's a little boy like Tamir Rice who had a toy gun um, or somebody who raises their hands and then they're still afraid of them because maybe they make a gesture. It's very sad. So we usually react with clinging or aversion or ignorance. Oh, I just, I just don't even listen to the news. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. So I just focus on creating a comfortable life for me and my family. But there is great suffering. Letting go of grief for the world doesn't mean that we stop recognizing that there's suffering. doesn't mean that it makes us suffer more. It doesn't mean that we get angry and create more suffering. And it doesn't mean that we ignore it. This is samsara. This is what the Buddha called samsara. You know, as we grow up, we become more aware of, of what's happening, what samsara is, what it consists of. This is great suffering. And great suffering calls for what I call kanon practice, kanon bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva of compassion. So we have statues of Kanon uh, that many of you have seen. Uh, Guan Yin, or Avalokiteshvara. And often she's portrayed as having a vase in her hand. And Kanon is called she, or it's uh, you know often a he, he or she, either one, has feminine and masculine characteristics. She who hears the cries of the world, and you can imagine what that's like. I mean, we hear some of those cries by listening to the news or seeing pictures of the refugees. On my Facebook page, I posted a map that shows all the refugees flowing towards Europe, those little dots representing, I don't know, 125 people or something. There's this mass of dots flowing towards Europe. And what's Europe going to do? You know, just seeing something like that, we recognize, oh, this is huge suffering. Imagine if you could hear all their cries of all those refugees. So she hears all the cries of all the suffering in the world, and she responds. And she responds by weeping, a natural human response, by weeping. But she collects her tears in this vase, and then she transforms them through the power of her practice into an elixir, a medicinal elixir, which she then uses to help relieve suffering. She administers it to those who are suffering. So we have to do that practice in response to the great suffering that we're aware of. We, of course, feel that suffering in our heart. We weep externally or internally. 
But then we use our practice to transform it into something that can benefit the world. And of course, we have to start with ourselves. We can transform the energy of grief over the suffering, over the fact of samsara, into determination and perseverance. To do whatever we can to relieve even a small bit of human suffering. A small bit of human suffering. I was telling someone whose uh, family is caught up in a child abuse situation, and she's really suffering over this um, because the system isn't doing what she had hoped it would do. I, I told her about my own experience when I began doing child abuse work. My boss, who'd had experience in child abuse work in Colorado, which is kind of where child abuse work began, my boss said to me, Jan, if you're going to do this child abuse work, you, your happiness in life cannot depend on the outcome in court. And I really uh, took that to heart, that I have to do the best I can with the person who's in front of me. That became my motto, to do the best I could with the person in front of me, the child who's suffering, the families who's suffering, right when they're with me. And the rest is pretty much out of my control. I'll do my piece in court, but you know there are dozens of people at least involved, 12 on a jury or a judge who, like once I had a judge who excused himself, went out had a drink and came out and was breathing alcohol all over me. I can't control that. I can only do my piece. So to transform our grief into determination and perseverance, to do what we can to relieve even a small bit of human suffering wherever we encounter it, wherever we have the ability to do that, in whatever arena we're working in, in the schoolroom, on the golf course, in the office, whether we're doing sales, recycling, cooking, making beds, vacuuming, visiting relatives, to do whatever we can to relieve suffering. I, I was laughing as I was writing vacuuming because once when Hogan and I came up from, uh, we left the Zen Center in Los Angeles and came up after uh, years of living there, and we came up here to begin practice up here, we decided we would sample some of the different spiritual traditions uh, other than Zen, because we'd been so immersed in Zen for decades. So we went around to church churches, to a Hindu ashram, and one of the places we went to was a spiritualist community. You know, spiritualist, spiritualism was involved seances and spirit, channeling spirits who would give you answers to questions, and Ouija boards, and so on. And there was a very active spiritualist community in... Um, uh, Oregon City, just south of Oregon City. With, it had big, big camp, summer camp that people would go to. So we went there, and it was a big room, and only a few people. Uh, and there were those uh, woven cane, cane seated chairs, rush seated chairs, old chairs, very squeaky. And we sat down, and there were probably I don't know eight people around us. And then the people who were presenting began to channel the spirits. And the, and the woman who was channeling said, the spirits are telling me that they're going to give each one of you a spiritual vacuum cleaner to vacuum all those negative thoughts out of your mind. <laughs> and, and, and Hogan said, let's get out of here. I said, we can't. <laughs> we just sat down and be really rude to leave. 
But you know, wouldn't it be great to have a spiritual vacuum cleaner? <laughs> they could vacuum all the negative and harmful thoughts out of our mind. That would be great. But we actually have that in our practice. So when we're vacuuming, <laughs> we can notice whether we have negative thoughts in our mind. And we can use the tools of practice to transform those. That's the beauty of our practice, that we have the tools to transform things that are unwholesome and not beneficial to us and others into things that are beneficial. That we can transform the anger and the violence in our own minds into loving kindness. We can transform, oh, I hate how she dresses, into, well, that's a really creative way to dress. Transformation is the key to our practice. (laughs) I saw on on Facebook a video of a Christmas pageant. You know, Christmas pageants are so cute when the kids get up and they're all dressed up and they all get up on stage. And in this this case, one shepherd got whammed by the wing of one angel and was like (laughs) reeling. (laughs) If you want to cheer yourself up, read the book, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. You don't have to go to the movie. Uh, But the book is just excellent. It will make you laugh, I guarantee. Especially if you ever went to Christmas pageants or participated in them in school or in church in your youth. Anyway, there's a video of a Christmas pageant, and everybody's up there, Mary and the doll in the manger and the little shepherds and their little things on their head and the angels with their wings. And then they begin singing a song, and one little angel is just singing at the top of her lungs, off key and completely out of sync with everybody else. But she is belting it out over everybody else. She's about five years old. And Mary looks at her like, whoa. And the the big angels look at her like, whoa. (laughs) But she's just going something like, silent night, holy night. (laughs) And the audience begins, (laughs) begins snickering. But it's so cute, you know. And you can think, oh, she ruined the whole pageant. Or you can think, wow, that is so wholehearted. That is fantastic. And you can tell that it just warms everybody's heart because she's the essence of wholeheartedness. <laughs> so that's, that's how we can turn the negative, the negative in our mind, which is the seed for anger and violence, into the positive in our practice. makes us practice doing that over and over and over again until it becomes a new habit pattern. So at home or in the schoolroom or wherever we are at work, to remember that we have choice. That's the gift of our practice. We have choice. As Roshi said, the greatest gift that we can give is the gift of no fear, and that this practice gives that gift. To remember that we have choice Awareness means choice. Awareness means choice. When, we're, when we can learn to pop up into awareness, we widen our worldview, our view of our own life and of the whole world. And out of awareness, which means non-reactivity, awareness is awareness, pure awareness. Everything has the same valence. Awareness means choice. And choice means freedom. So I was down in Mexico a few weeks ago teaching mindful eating to professionals who were really hungry for to bring mindfulness into the work that they do. They're very tired of handing out diet sheets, knowing that people are not going to follow the diet sheets. 
And so the patient comes back and they've failed and you as a professional have failed. They're tired of that cycle. And they say about mindful eating, this is the missing piece. So they're really, really hungry to learn it. But when, I, when, I, when we, we, taught, we were teaching people, not just the techniques of mindful eating, anybody can learn that, but the underlying aspect of true mindfulness practice and meditation. And many, some of the people who had come had never meditated before, and they did a half-day retreat, which was a revelation to many of them, to do a half-day silent retreat. So in that silent retreat, we move up into awareness. In that silence, in our meditation, we move up into awareness. And awareness means choice. Oh, look at, I did think I did this, but oh, I could have done it differently. Awareness means choice, and choice means freedom. Awareness means, oh, look, I'm, being, I'm saying cruel things to myself. Oh, I could turn that into a loving-kindness phrase for myself, a compassion for myself. Oh, awareness. My mind just, just had a jealous thought about somebody who, who's more successful than me in whatever realm I want to be successful in. Oh, I just had a jealous thought about them. Oh. I have a choice. I can turn that into sympathetic joy and rejoice in their success. So awareness means choice, and choice means freedom. To free ourselves from affliction, from the seeds of violence. Can I tell your story? Not yet. <laughs> oh, your story. Your story is great, too. Okay, I'm going to tell two stories. Is it, Nadia, can I tell yours first? Your grandfather? Yes. Yeah. So Nadia goes home to visit his grandfather, and he came back kind of feeling like, oh, I had such a hard time. You know, I just I didn't know. I really failed. So I said, well, you know, just tell me about what happened. So Nadia has visited his grandfather three times in the past few years, and his grandfather watches a certain news channel, which will remain unnamed, but drives Nadia crazy. So um, <laughs> all day, all day, the same news. You know how it recycles a, a day, you know, every five minutes, the same news. So he said, well, the three times ago when he visited his, his grandfather, he would get into violent arguments about what was on the news because it was a different political stance than Nadia holds. And then two times ago, he would just storm out of the room. And this time, they actually had a conversation, right? Which was what? Is that not wonderful? Three tries. And he's into freedom. He's into choice and freedom. And out of suffering. It's fantastic. And then we have the other. <laughs> Tegan's a great story. Can I tell your story? So um, Tegan went back home for Thanksgiving. And she packed all of her diaries for many, many years of her life, uh, including all of her teenage suffering really difficult, very, very difficult times and a lot of suffering uh, described in detail in her diaries. And she had never moved her diaries before because she was very, very afraid of losing them. 
and but she decided to be brave, pack them in a suitcase, and send them out here. And did you pay extra for the weight? No. Uh, still cost to do it. Yeah. So she, but while she was doing it, she was thinking, "Oh no, I might, I might lose these. I might lose these. Oh no." So here comes this extra suitcase, uh, about fifty pounds for, worth of her suffering. <laughs> <laughs> And she's so afraid, like even when she's putting it on the little, you know, weighing machine, oh, I'm, I'm afraid I could lose this. And sure enough, they lost it. <laughs> and so calls and so on didn't appear, didn't appear. And then the police from the airport called her yesterday and say, we think it was stolen. So then the mind adds more suffering, right? <laughs> so the mind adds the suffering of, oh, no, somebody's going to open up and read all of this all of my personal life, they're going to read it, and then they'll post it on Facebook. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she was thinking about that, and really, really, really grieving about it and suffering about it. And then, so I introduced her to what I call 180-degree flip practice. So this is a beautiful practice in Zen, that you take whatever's happening and you flip it 180 degrees. So I said, okay, <clears throat> so your big fear is that somebody would read this and say, wow, this is amazing, I'm going to post it on Facebook. <laughs> So let's flip that 180 degrees, <laughs> and you flip it 180 degrees, and it's what? Do you get a There you go. They go, oh my gosh, this is garbage, you know. This is a teenage girl's rambling, and they throw it in the trash. So then when I said that, when she realized that, she started laughing. It was so great, you got it right away. You were able to flip it right away. Oh, this thing that I thought was... I mean mine and my ball of suffering, my ma my 50-pound mass of suffering. Nobody cares about it except me, and it's gone. <laughs> that burden is gone. <laughs> and then I said, okay, now we're going to flip around the part where you're really afraid you're going to lose it. I'm really afraid I'm going to lose it. I'm really afraid. Gonna... And she was worried that maybe she caused it to be lost by thinking, you know, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to maybe I'm going to lose it. But I said, well, okay, let's flip that around. So you're afraid you're going to lose it. Let's flip that 180 degrees, which was? I wanted to let go of it. I wanted to let go of it. I wanted to lose it. And now I'm free of that huge burden. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. And she got both of those right away. And she began laughing. It was so great. So that's the, and that was after Ongo ended. <laughs> like a, like what? Ten minutes after Ongo ended, and <laughs> she, <laughs> she has this wonderful realization. So that's the power of perseverance and determination and working with your stuff, working with your suffering. Because when we work with our own suffering and we become free, then we become able to help people who have the same kind of suffering. Awareness means choice, and choice means freedom. So we're entering this evening Rohatsu session, which is one of our most powerful and sacred sessions of the year. It commemorates the Buddha's awakening. And as we do that, if you're not here for session, please sit with us. Please be aware, extra aware, that we're sitting for, the, for this week. And we're sitting uh, because the Buddha inspired us to take the vow to become awakened, which is all of your vow, even if it's not a conscious vow. You are striving to become awakened, to become 
the person you know that you have the potential to uncover. It already exists within you. It needs to be cultivated and grown. So please, when you sit at home, remember that we're sitting and sit with us, literally. And with all the thousands of people around the world who are sitting this Rohatsu session. And the millions sit with the millions who are working for peace on earth and goodwill towards all people. In my mind, I always visualize each one of us as a piece of an enormous jigsaw puzzle of existence, stretching through, through time and through space. And we need to know that exactly our piece, however it is shaped, and wherever in the infinite puzzle it is located, is exactly the right place for it to be to do this most important work of bringing peace and goodwill towards ourselves and towards all creatures. <laughs>